Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. My name is Anam Farhan, and I work in the Environment and Society program. I am temporarily taking over as host from Anna and Anthony for this special episode on building resilient coastal communities in South Asia. I will graciously be handing this role back to them in the new year. So you may have listened to our previous episode on the climate crisis in South Asia, which explored the extreme weather events that India and Pakistan experienced this year, in particular a prolonged heat wave and major flooding in the summer. This episode will continue with that regional focus, but look more closely at how climate change is threatening coastal cities. In many cases, mega cities like Mumbai, Karachi and Dhaka, and how local communities are responding to adapt and build resilience. By way of background, South Asia is home to a quarter of the global population who reside in only 3.5% of the world's land area making it the most populous and the most densely populated region in the world. According to the Global Climate Risk Index, it is the most impacted region in the world in terms of fatalities and economic losses between 1998 and 2017 due to climate change. A recent study has also found that Chittagong in Bangladesh and Ahmedabad in India are two of the fastest sinking coastal cities, leaving millions of people vulnerable to rising sea levels. All of this has had and will continue to have a knock-on effect in terms of livelihoods and economies in the region. And from a climate justice angle, the worst impacts of climate change really are being borne by some of the most vulnerable and poor populations. We're going to talk through all of this with some really great speakers, and I'm going to try and maintain a solutions-focused conversation, particularly as we're speaking while CBD COP15, the UN Biodiversity Conference, is ongoing. We'll explore some fantastic community level initiatives which are making a difference on the ground and also consider if there are any alternative approaches to thinking about regional cooperation to build coastal resilience. So I'm really happy to be joined today by Yusuf Jamil, a research manager at Project Drawdown and an environmental scientist with experience in water resources, public health and science communication. Ashwin Naidu, founder of the Fishing Cat Conservancy, which empowers local people in South and Southeast Asia to help fishing cats and reforest mangrove habitats. And finally, Dhanashri Jayaram, an assistant professor at the Manipal Academy of Higher Education, who's also done a lot of work with climate diplomacy, which is an Adelphi project on identifying the geopolitical and geostrategic risks of environmental change in South Asia. So Yusuf, if I could come to you first, could you provide our listeners with an overview of the risks and vulnerabilities challenging coastal towns in South Asia? And what exactly does it mean when we talk about coastal resilience? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that question. So let me begin with this. South Asia is one of the most vulnerable places to climate change. It's also home to 1.9 billion people, which is about 20 to 22% of global population. And within South Asia, when we look at coastal cities, there are millions of people living there and they are very vulnerable to different aspects of climate change. You know, when we just look at the major cities of Kolkata, Dhaka, Chennai, Mumbai, Karachi, they are home to more than 150 million people. That's greater than the population of 
England and France combined. So the three main risks that we are seeing that they are facing are one, rising sea level. Everyone knows that it's a long-term risk arising from climate change. You know, at places the, the sea level is rising slowly and, you know, it affects the people living there, the economy. On a shorter time scale, something that we are seeing right now are storms and cyclones. Every year, a lot of these cities, these places are experiencing extreme weather events, extreme storms, extreme cyclones that is causing losses resulting in billions of dollars. And we have to see that these are developing countries and a lot of people are extremely poor. They live on less than dollar two a day. And for them, when these storm strikes, when the cyclone comes, they lose everything. They are living on the edge. And in some extent, they are just one cyclone, one extreme weather event away. And with the regularity with which these extreme events are happening, it's directly affecting millions of people in a way that they are losing their livelihood, they're losing their assets, they're losing their families. So the first one was rising sea level, which is happening, but the effect is, is slow right now. The other is storms and cyclones that we're seeing right now. And the third one that I want to highlight here that might be missed sometimes is high heat index. These places are experiencing. When we see coastal places, we imagine, oh, wow, beautiful sunshine, you know, nice weather. But the fact is, in South Asia, these places experience extreme high humidity and heat. So they have very high heat index. It is predicted that or projected that by 2050, more than six months in a year, places like Kolkata and Karachi will have heat index exceeding 35 Celsius. And what it means is your body cannot cool itself. And the impact and damage is immense. You know, you are talking about economic losses because people cannot work. The health damage is immense. Your people can suffer from heat stroke. You talk about children, they cannot go to school. It directly affects their development. Eventually, in the long term, it would lead to migration of people. And that, that directly affects security. As I mentioned, the, the area is home to about 1.9 billion people. You don't have place. So it really is a very huge, uh, major issue. And the last one that is not directly related, but a key point is aquaculture, uh, you know, shrimp farming. I want to bring this up is because over the term, it has led to poverty alleviation in the region. A lot of farmers who have seen their crops being devastated by cyclones or not having access to, uh, to water, they shifted to uh, shrimp farming. It has helped them. But over the long term, it has led to a lot of damage. You know, uh, the salinity coming from it is destroying the local groundwater. According to some estimates, about 30% of the mangroves have been destroyed by the uh, shrimp farming that really benefits eventually a tiny minority of the people. Yes, the people working on the ground, they have food to eat, but eventually the benefit is very minuscule compared to what the money that large corporations are making. To, so to summarize, I think the coastal regions, especially in South Asia, are facing multiple challenges, multiple threats at different levels. You have the rising sea level, you have a continuous uh, threat from storms and cyclones, you have high heat index, and then finally, in some locations, you have a problem from aquaculture. So these are major risks that's affecting millions of people living in these regions. Uh, and going to your next point about coastal resilience. So really, when we talk about coastal resilience, I think there are three key things, and it really varies 
upon the person you ask. If you ask a marine scientist, what is coastal resilience? They would say, oh, it's about protecting the coral reefs, which are, you know, rapidly being damaged by rising temperature, you know, uh, by the changes in alkalinity of the oceans. You talk about mangroves, you know, we have to protect the mangroves and the, and the, and the salt marshes. When you talk about the to developmental economics, they talk about livelihoods that are being lost by rising sea level, by cyclones, by storm surge, and how to increase the resilience of these people living in coastal regions. And finally, when you talk to a climate scientist, they would only think about carbon sequestration. Oh, we need to protect the mangrove because they're a great carbon sink. So we need to do this, we need to do that. But the fact is you cannot see all of these three as in silos, they're all three connected and we need all three to work together. So when we talk about coastal resilience, and again, given that COP15 is going right now, the COP on biodiversity, it's very important to see all the three aspects of it, not only one, not only the climate aspect of it, or not only protecting the biodiversity or you know improving the lives and livelihoods. All three are connected and we have to see all of three, all three of them together. So this is how we see coastal resilience. And again, millions of people in South Asia are relying on coastal systems. And if they are degraded, they will lose their homes, their jobs, their livelihoods. So eventually, by protecting coastal systems, you are in fact providing or improving the livelihoods of these people. And in the long run, you are also contributing to climate mitigation, which will eventually slow down a little bit the impacts of climate change that we are seeing right now. Thank you, Yusuf. That's an incredibly valuable overview to set the scene on this issue. What are some of the positive stories to building coastal resilience that you've seen emerging from your work? You know, from my own experience, uh, I can narrate some stories. You know, when Cyclone Amphan hit Bangladesh and India in 2020, uh, May of 2020, it, it was one of the most deadliest and also the costliest. About 120 people died. The, the resulting damage was estimated to be about $13 billion. And uh, what coastal communities really realized that, you know, the only way to protect their land, to, to protect their lives and livelihoods is through going back to what they have been doing for centuries to protect the nature. So if you are aware of how things are changing, and this is uh, mostly in Bangladesh and India, you know, where there has been a lot of damage to mangroves. And Sundarbans are the largest mangroves and it's so important to the area. So people went back, they started, and I'm aware of NGOs on ground. Uh, I've been in touch with them who are working with local people to really educate them, you know, what's happening there and provide them with solutions that will hopefully work. And that includes, you know, uh, replanting, restoring degraded mangrove forests, protecting what is already there. And again, I read a lot of stories in different news outlets and magazines where local people are taking the initiative, where they are making sure that, you know, biodiversity is protected, the local habitat is protected, because eventually it will help them live peacefully and uh, happily in that area. And I think that's a great story where uh, local communities have really uh, come together and have taken the lead in, 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 in addressing the challenges they are facing. Uh, similarly, uh, I can narrate a story from COP27 where I was just a few weeks ago. You know, I met the delegates from Pakistan, you know, and again, they realized how important uh, protecting wetlands and mangroves are 
in protecting the coastal areas in the province of Balochistan and Sindh, they have lost uh, several uh, thousand acres of land to rising sea level and uh, through degradation of the area, through cutting down the forest. And there is a sense from local government that no, we need to take care of this. Eventually, yes, by cutting forest, you can make quick money right now. But in the long run, it's very, very detrimental. It's not going to help no one. And this sense of you know taking the ownership and really taking the lead to protect local livelihoods and local ecosystems. And I think these are the stories that we need to push forward. Thanks, Yusuf. That's such an important point there on local ownership. And you provided a really nice segue into talking about mangroves. So mangroves are a crucial ecosystem in protecting coastal communities. They're often the first line of defense against storms, tsunamis, coastal erosion, but deforestation rates are increasing. Ashwin, you founded an organization called the Fishing Cat Conservancy. Can you tell us a bit more about how fishing cats connect to mangroves and coastal resilience? Sure. So fishing cats are a small cat, a small wild cat species uh, found uh, primarily in South and Southeast Asia. The last I can uh, think of is 11 range countries. And, uh, you know, we've uh, studied them quite extensively in some local areas uh, in, in, in coastal India and uh, Sri Lanka. So they're, they're related uh, in the sense they, they inhabit mangrove forests in many parts of South and Southeast Asia, but they're also present in inland wetlands in rivers and you know swamps uh, and and so they're a very wetland oriented uh, species and uh, of course you know coming from a uh, wildlife and a, a particularly a wild cat research background uh, i was fascinated by these cats and you know their affinity to these very unique ecosystems and uh, very important ecosystems because, you know, as we're talking about coastal resilience here, you know, mangrove forests are sort of the first ecosystem that comes to mind uh, when you're trying to protect coastlines uh, because they're so uh, useful in, you know, uh, protecting against natural disasters like tsunamis and maintaining the integrity of coastlines in general. So um, it was happenstance that we were studying these fishing cats and uh, you know, we stumbled upon where we were studying them in coastal India. We were interacting with many uh, people who live next to these mangrove ecosystems and have were, were, were seeing fishing cats uh, in, in these ecosystems and sort of felt like this could actually be a flagship species for the protection of these coastal ecosystems. And, uh, you know, just like the tiger is for many of these, uh, you know, forests, that, you know, tropical forests and uh and so we just th thought that, you know, fishing cats could be a, uh, a face for these coastal ecosystem conservation. And we were, uh, you know, driving this idea forward of, you know, using fishing cats as a flagship species to protect these ecosystems. And over a span of seven to eight years, um, it led us to a lot of learning about the importance of uh, coastal ecosystems for local livelihood, local people livelihoods. And so as a nonprofit organization, um, Fishing Cat Conservancy, we were focused on trying to uh, figure out a way to 
protect fishing cats in their habitat and protect mangrove ecosystems and uh, coastal ecosystems, but with the trust and with the, uh, by working with the local people, that, that was the only way to, to essentially ensure protection of the species and the habitat. And so we learn a lot of things on the way. I mean, we, you know, first of all, we're trying to figure out why fishing cats were going extinct or, uh, or, or losing their habitat in the first place and, you know, mangrove ecosystems. And uh, one of the, those primary, one of the primary reasons for the destruction of mangrove ecosystems was uh, aquaculture and the international demand for farmed uh, fish and shrimp. And so what we saw was uh, mangroves being deforested and converted into fish and shrimp farms reasons being pretty obvious uh, that, you know, that fish and shrimp farming uh, aquaculture uh, is a livelihood. And so our approach was to then figure out how can we create a livelihood based off of conservation or rather mangrove ecosystems? Because there are a lot of communities that depend on fishing from mangrove ecosystems. And, you know, mangroves are natural fish stock. They're sustainable fish sources of fish for for human livelihoods, and so we were trying to approach it from the educational angle of, hey, you know, mangroves are important for long-term sustainability of livelihoods of people, but we're also trying to tie in the economic aspects of how can we create a conservation-based livelihood for local people here, and we partway succeeded with you know, a few experiments of mangrove restoration and, you know, nonprofit project funding-based livelihoods, and then partially successful on the ecotourism front where we were able to get a lot of people to visit these mangrove sites where we were working and and see fishing cats in in person, you know, nothing more exciting than seeing a very cool wild animal in the wild. So we, we were able to after eight years of working deeply with local communities, come up with some solutions that could be sustainable. I wonder if I could push you on that point about local ownership and engagement, which has come up a few times already. It's clearly critical to the effectiveness and sustainability of any community level initiative, but what does that partnership with local communities actually look like in practice? What is it needed to be successful? you know, how does it look like in person, which is really important because, you know, we can we can sort of come up with theories and rather, uh, you know, sort of these models of how things can work, but putting them into practice is completely, you know, different. Um, you know, we think of some numbers in our mind, we think of visions in our mind, but when we actually go and try to figure, you know, make things happen on the ground, it just, a lot of stuff, that is ideal just falls apart. So in our case, we we had this vision of, oh yeah, we're going to have these local communities become proud of these mangrove habitats, become proud of these fishing cats and, you know, make, you know, take this whole thing and be like, wow, this is the wealth that we have in our backyard and we can actually make a livelihood, you know, showing people this wealth and basically, but, you know, that was what we were feeling. And when we, when we went down and we started showing these pictures, um, yeah, I mean, you know, here, you know, this is what I do. You know, I have a picture of a fishing cat on my phone and I show this to local people and go, look, hey, here's this beautiful animal in your backyard. And it's a conversation starter. And uh, people talk about the fact that, yeah, it is there. We see it every day. Um, and yeah, these 
forests are absolutely beautiful. I mean, you guys have come from such far distances. And, you know, really, this was my backyard in India, you know, state where I grew up in. Uh, of course, you know, I, I did my education abroad and uh, I still reside abroad. But, you know, we were communicating in our local language while, we're, while we were there. And it's same thing with Indonesia and Sri Lanka. And, you know, we go there, we, when we talk to local people are 99.99% of people are so warm and welcoming. And it's really nice to live with them, eat with them, talk to them about this stuff. But, you know, ultimately they boil down to the question, uh, okay, yeah, this is a really amazing species and y'all are coming from such far distances to come visit our homes, these humble abodes next to these forests. And we're very happy to host you and take care of you. But how does the fishing cat really help us out uh, in terms of our economic livelihood or living? And, you know, generally speaking, what is the benefit of having a fishing cat in our backyard? Right. So what we when we partner with uh, these local people, uh, you know, villagers specifically, we had this idea that, OK, here's what we're going to do. We're first of all, we spent four or five years with you already mapping the locations of these cats and setting up wildlife cameras and collecting information about where these cats are doing the research that's required from a wildlife front to actually show that, Hey, you know, this is an endangered species and these are prime habitats worth protecting for these endangered species. And so from a nonprofit perspective, we were able to hire a few uh, local people to actually get involved with that research. But then as with any research, you discover problems that lead you to the next big thing. And the next big thing was really, how can we create an economic system that can work to transition people to protecting these animals and, and these coastal ecosystems, which we deem so valuable. And we started the ecotourism idea of, hey, we love the food that you guys serve us. We love the fact that we can get onto your boat. And these are fishermen we're talking about, right? you know, fresh caught fish and shrimp, you know, they'll, they'll catch them, they'll cook them the same day and they'll feed them to us the, the night of. And we would get on their boats and we would get to go among these mangroves and uh, see all these birds and animals and, you know, turtles and species like dog-faced water snakes. And I mean, this is absolutely amazing wildlife out, out in the mangroves. And, and coming from a, you know, night, you know, if you're a nature lover, it's paradise to to go out into the mangroves. You know, kayaking among mangroves is a big uh, ecotourism activity. I mean, that's huge. And we just thought the same thing. We should we should bring in some ecotourism activities. So we set up uh, what we call a conservation camp. Uh, you know, we pitched out tents uh, on a beach site, very close to where these mangroves were. We uh, did a very natural theme to it. We locally sourced the bamboo. We constructed these nice, uh, you know, tent sites. We invited a whole bunch of people. I think we had 150 people come out in the first three months when we had this camp just pre-pandemic. And uh, we were able to use that uh, income and we created a sort of a local business there for the local community and said, hey, uh, hey, you know, ecotourism has been working great all around the world. Why don't we create a, a little ecotourist spot? So we created something called a Fishcat Nature Reserve. So, so things were going, going, seemed to start picking up and, and, and they liked it. The local people liked it. They, uh, they enjoyed the fact that, you know, they were getting so many visitors and, 
They're looking forward to when are we going to do more camps and so on and so forth. Unfortunately for us, you know, we, we got hit with the pandemic and that sort of shut down a lot of ecotourism traffic. So that was, I was really looking forward to that. So anyway, uh, we had to adapt and uh, we're now in a place where we are leading expeditions led by conservationists. It's so interesting to hear how you were able to build that trust and generate those economic incentives. And I think your work's a fantastic example of the impact that can be created at a local level. So I wonder if you've, you've thought about how this kind of impact could be financed and scaled up. If we have to scale this, we have to figure out a need that nature can serve. And one of the big needs that nature does serve and serves all of us is we get we like to get outdoors and be in nature for a while. You know, even if it's in the cities, you walk into the parks and you want to be out there just by yourself or, you know, just be in peace, one with nature. And everyone has that need almost, right? So we saw that there is potential in in connecting with landowners and actually converting their lands into nature reserves. Well, converting sounds like a strong word, but really what we're trying to do is we're partnering with landowners and saying, hey, by the way, if you are not using your land to any productive cause, and there are many such landowners who just have land but are not doing anything with it, you could have a forest and you could have people visit you and you could have a conservationist guide people to see wildlife over there and treat it as an outdoor zoo, if you will. It's it's out in nature. You know, you have birds, you have wildlife, you have animals. So we created uh, something called Fish Cat Nature Reserve. And the concept is any landowner that has a piece of land can call their land a nature reserve. And we could send people or rather tell people about it and say, hey, come come see fishing cats in the Fish Cat Nature Reserve in coastal Andhra Pradesh in India. Uh, and we created another Fish Cat Nature Reserve in Sri Lanka. In the, in, and and, and uh, what, what came together for us was the, the fact that we were, we were we had transitioned from a philanth- traditional philanthropy where it's like, you know, you have a nonprofit project, you get funded and there's donors to it, to a multi-stakeholder benefit idea of, uh, partnering with landowners and lodge owners. Okay, lodge owners is the next part. If you go to Sri Lanka, we're partnered with a lodge called the Gull Oil Lodge, and we've been working with them for five years. And uh, they're a beautiful sort of luxury lodge, right? And But they're completely eco-oriented. Uh, so they don't have any plastics. They, they hire only local people. Uh, and they have a very conservation-oriented owner. Albeit it's a for-profit lodge, it is completely aligned with our interests to protect. And they have 35 acres of land. And one acre out of which we were able to hire, able to hire a conservationist who worked to restore that one acre and monitor fishing cats over there. So if you go to Galoya Lodge in Sri Lanka, you will get to see fishing cats, hopefully in the night, whenever wherever the naturalist and the conservationist will take you to show them. And you'll get to see the fact that they actually have a fish cat nature reserve, which the landowner and the lodge owner, uh, Tim Edwards, has committed, saying that, you know what, this will be land that will be protected for wildlife. So just like that, we think we have a potential scalable franchise model 
you know, you, you have you have franchise models all over. You have KFCs and McDonald's and all of these crazy franchises. Why can't we have a nature reserve franchise? And conservation, you know, I, I do I do want to shed light on this, is that it's still not a profession that is chosen for or is sought after. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily being that uh, it doesn't have a natural source of funding aside from ecotourism. And if we are able to create, and that's what we're focused on right now with these expeditions, is to try to create some of these uh, economic systems that can function over time, then we'll start to see change. And what I dream about, obviously, is all these deforested lands turning green again. But what I'm more excited about is the fact that we've seeded this entrepreneurial spirit in many of these local people. And what I want to see going forward is these entrepreneurs taking charge and going, hey, you know, we actually can make this a thriving livelihood mechanism. That is when we penetrate the economic system of the world and go, hey, nature has value. And by the way, it's not short-term profit value, it's long-term livelihood value. And that's what, you know, is, is, just, is just super exciting going forward is working with nature to solve the economic crises that are crippling many of these communities. Long-term livelihood value. I love that. Thank you, Ashwin, for providing us with that really in-depth perspective on your work and experience on working on coastal resilience issues. That was that was incredibly interesting. Um, I'd like to move to Dhanashri and start thinking about some of the regional and policy implications. Um, Dhanashri, could you start by telling us what some of the obstacles to regional cooperation on climate change are in South Asia? There are many obstacles to regional cooperation on climate change in South Asia, although uh, at the recent uh, COP27, we saw that all the countries in the region spoke with one voice on loss and damage, but that's a rare expression of solidarity and unity on climate change related issues. Uh, Many a time we make the mistake of singling out the geopolitical rivalries and the lack of trust that exists between countries as the sole reason for the lack of regional cooperation. Of course, uh, these reasons are very important. And, you know, uh, with India-Pakistan relations, uh, seeing many ups and downs, more downs than ups. Also, the lack of trust that exists between India and Nepal uh, on water, uh, river water sharing, as well as other issues now also with territorial uh, boundaries with India and Bangladesh as well. So there are many, many geopolitical sort of dynamics that operate against the, uh, the, the need for climate change cooperation, considering there are many transboundary uh, ecosystems and transboundary climate issues on which uh, uh, the South Asian countries can cooperate. But besides that, I think there's also uh, this mismatch in terms of what are the expectations of climate cooperation among the countries as well. Uh, Because although you can say that most of the countries in the region are at similar levels of economic development and uh, they are mostly uh, middle income or lower middle income countries, uh, but still uh, there is a mismatch in terms of who has more capacities or who's more vulnerable, who considers a particular issue an existential threat. So these vulnerabilities themselves are seen very differently or the perceptions around these vulnerabilities are very different. So for Bangladesh and uh, Maldives, for example, climate change is considered an existential threat. But for other countries, uh, this existential nature of the problem is something that is becoming more and more prominent now in recent times. 
so obviously, in terms of prioritization, this is something that affects a regional level of decision making as well. Uh, so there is a different level of capacity. There is also a lack of resources. Most of the countries in the region are dependent on international finance and aid for climate action at the national level. Uh, so for regional policies to work, the national level policies also have to be strengthened. And unfortunately, because of the lack of capacities and resources, most of the countries still lag behind when it comes to strengthening these national level institutions and capacities, which is something important for regional level policymaking to work. So before countries could really pool their resources and, and, and work on regional level cooperation, uh, they are more sort of inclined towards getting aid or getting grants or loans from uh, the global north, from the uh, industrialized countries to work on their climate programs. So this is something that also affects the way countries view their climate vulnerabilities and also work on their capacity. So they kind of look outside of the region uh, for solutions rather than within the region. And do you think momentum or thinking has shifted at all, given the extreme weather events and the level of devastation that we saw taking place in the region in 2022? There is some level of change. So obviously the uh, loss and damage, uh, uh, the fund that most countries in South Asia, all the countries in South Asia fought for, shows that there is a shift in understanding uh, around uh, the extreme weather events, because like the heat wave, for instance, was severe uh, in India and Pakistan. The flooding related incidents have uh, risen in recent years. Cyclones in the Bay of Bengal and the Arabian Sea in both these parts have increased in recent years. So obviously there is at least more understanding around the need for cooperation, sharing knowledge, uh, uh, you know, raising awareness around these issues policy making or uh, in terms of also building some regional efforts, which is beyond even regional organizations. So very often we look at it through the lens of, say, South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, which really hasn't worked much uh, in terms of promoting climate cooperation. I mean, there hasn't been an annual summit, for instance, uh, since 2014, but that doesn't mean that there is nothing else happening. So there are other sort of efforts being made to both uh, national governments as well as you know very local sort of initiatives across borders which are working towards building coastal resilience uh, like working on land use planning for instance early warning systems is something that is being focused upon as well especially with the kind of risks that uh, that climate change poses to the coastal populations uh, um, on infrastructures which are you know includes like many big ports for instance or the fact that there are many fishing conflicts in the region, which are also uh, influenced by climate change uh, in a big way. So oh, more, than, more than before, there is an awareness and there is also an understanding that we need to cooperate on these issues. And But of course, there needs to be the political will as well to how to really advance it to the next level. So therefore, even though many agreements have been signed in the past, there is also a SAC climate action plan there are many memorandum of understanding between countries, uh, like, for instance, between India and Bangladesh on protection of Sundarbans and also on disaster risk reduction as well. Uh, there are more and more sort of uh, agreements and, you know, more understanding, at least on these issues. But that hasn't really translated into implementation of many of these efforts. So one could say, for instance, today with the economic crisis that many countries in the region are facing, Sri Lanka, of course, uh, comes first, but also other countries in the region, Pakistan, 
is also facing severe energy and economic crisis. Bangladesh is also facing energy crisis. India also is facing energy-related uh, problems. So in, in, in that sense, there is that common sort of platform on which all these countries can come together, especially today with this kind of compound crisis or multiple crisis that the region is facing. And I think everybody realizes that climate change has to be part of that pool of crisis which, uh, which the countries need to work together on. So the awareness and the intention is there. Is there a different way that we can be structuring regional cooperation on coastal resilience in particular? And is there anything that we should be learning from past failures? Yeah, I think, of course, we have to look beyond these regional organizations. You cannot keep something like climate change conditional on other other issues. Uh, of course, there will be conditionalities and there will be like all these complementarities between issues that countries will work on. But at the same time, uh, look beyond SART. Of course, BIMSTEC is there. BIMSTEC uh, is a Bay of Bengal-based regional organization. I'm not saying BIMSTEC is working really well either because, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's a way of trying to avoid the problems between India and Pakistan to see what are the areas in which, uh, say, the Bay of Bengal-based uh, countries can work on. And in fact, climate change is one of the, one of the priority areas for BIMSTEC. There is a working group on uh, climate change and disaster risk reduction as well. But, uh, but this organization hasn't really either produced much outcomes on climate cooperation. So which means that regional organizations as a whole haven't really worked uh, favorably towards uh, cooperation on climate and related issues. So therefore, I would say we need to look beyond this model of regional organizations and see what are the kind of activities that are already happening nationally and sort of scale it up. Uh, starting with transboundary initiatives, which I feel there's already a lot of momentum being built uh, towards, say, transboundary research networks working on the Sundarbans is one area, uh, or the fact that there is already river water sharing related uh, cooperative arrangements, which are again local, locally led as well. So there is a chance to build uh, these local initiatives, bottom-up initiatives, and sort of weave them together into more regionally-led solutions with more funding and more capacity building. And then, you know, this could potentially also reinvigorate some of the regional organizations to look into these solutions and see how they can also be adapted into the larger scheme of uh, regional cooperation. Thank you, Tanashri. That's, that's provided a lot of really interesting food for thought. We're almost coming to the end of our, our conversation and there's been a lot of highs and lows that we've spoken about and I'd like us to try and end on a positive note. So I wonder if I could ask each of you as researchers and practitioners working on climate change in South Asia, what keeps you optimistic? What gives you hope? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's again, it's a question that I ask myself and, you know, we go through cycles of hope and despair. Sometimes we are very happy when we hear something you know a good development and sometimes you hear like you know development for example you know i read recently that a coal mine was commissioned in the uk which was kind of very sad that you know after trying to you know and again coming from someone who grew up in a developing country you know the uk have been at the forefront in saying oh we'll not fund any projects involving fossil fuels in africa or in south asia and then you see them uh, you know, commissioning a coal mine in the UK. So from that angle also, it feels like, okay, 
this is definitely not working. So we have that despair days. But generally, a lot of days are very hopeful, you know. When I talk with people, when I see how people across South Asia, because I go there quite often, they are reacting to it, I feel very hopeful. First of all, a lot of people know about climate change. Even, you know, you go down the street, you talk with anyone, you know, and they would be aware of what's happening with the food system, what's happening with the water cycle, what's, how the weather is changing. They're very aware and they understand at a very higher level of what's going on. And that's a great thing, you know. Uh, I think that's very important because that would lead to that push, you know, to find solutions for the challenges we are seeing. Yes, the work is slow, uh, but it's growing. And again, COP27 was the first time I went to a COP uh, event and I saw that Bangladesh is a leader in when it comes to adaptation. They have some really great solutions out there. They have done tremendous amount of work in building the coastal resilience of their communities, because perhaps in South Asia, they are the ones that are battered the most when it comes to cyclones and storms. And they were, you know, they have done a great job in also improving the quality of the life of their people. So they have shown, you know, even in adverse situation, you can improve the life, you can protect yourself. And that's a great adaptation story there. When it comes to India, you know, uh, I've seen a huge increase in solar power. Like India is really leading forward when it comes to solar energy. And, and there is a push from the people, from the government to deploy, to focus on renewable energies. Nepal is leading on forest conservation. Bhutan is probably one of the only countries that is carbon negative. When we see Pakistan, you know, they led to the loss and damage deal. It was chaired by Pakistan. So they did a great job in keeping all the countries together. It took us 30 years. So there is a huge uh, push from the people, from the government. Everyone is aware of this. And finally, I would like to add the role of youth activists. You know, they are playing a tremendous role in educating all of us, you know, of what's going on. And because they are the one who will live for the next few years. And so they are really leading forward that discussion, you know, that we need to protect our you know, ecosystems, we need to address climate change just because it's so important for them. I think the fact that, uh, you know, South Asia is a big region with multiple vulnerabilities, but also many success stories of dealing with climate change uh, in rather ingenious ways at times. Uh, so even without the funding or the lack of funding hasn't really stopped many communities from working on solutions, many local governments to work on solutions, or for that matter, uh, other actors to come forward and think about how do we deal with this irrespective of the kind of challenges that we face. So which is why I see that many community-led initiatives or community-led adaptation projects and also the fact that many, uh, many rural areas and urban areas are finding ways to become self-sufficient in energy security through, for instance, renewable energy, or the fact that, you know, there are many social enterprises-led initiatives, which is looking at empowering women and other marginalized communities uh, in terms of climate action. So I feel there is a lot of momentum at a very local level, which, which gives me hope that there is, there is, that there is that resilience at the very local level. But of course, this won't be enough because as we as we move forward, as climate change uh, or the climate crisis worsens, and as as temperature rises even further, and you know the lack of mitigation at the global level is obviously something 
that is going to lead to more vulnerabilities and suffering for the most marginalized communities. So this means that this won't be enough and more needs to be done from the from the governments and other big players who really need to step up uh, their act and do more than what they're doing already. So yes, there is hope, but this hope needs to be backed up by solid action from the top. My love for animals and the natural world and uh, the fact that we are so lucky, even with all the problems in the world, we are still in a place where we're able to get a chance to experience earth the way it is. And uh, I think that it's worth protecting and building to something that, you know, until we discover planet B, right? If you look at the macro stuff, which is, you know, nations cooperation, you know, if you you look at COP biodiversity meetings, you look at a lot of macro stuff, much of the macro stuff is a very important thing, but it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to feel. It's hard to tangibly sort of like touch and feel and understand like, Hey, is this, is this meaningful, you know? Right. And it's important, you know, it's, I'm not negating the, the value of politicians and, and uh, you know, national level, international level cooperation to essentially promote the, uh, uh, you know, restoration of things like restoration of mangrove ecosystems, like it's super important. It's, it's absolutely, I mean, if you look at the world, like it's, it's, the globe is one unit, the air we breathe has no borders, right? It's all common. You know, you're in the UK, I'm here, we're, we're breathing the same air. There's no partitions out there, right? If you look at it from that global perspective. So one country's action will inadvertently, or like there's no uh, question to it that, you know, every, all these small actions are are impacting the larger global community. But let's look at it from a tangible standpoint. What you and I can relate to is that meal that the fishermen served us uh, in, in their house that feeling of sitting on a boat and being taken through this forest to see this beautiful animal. Those are sort of these meaningful experiences that, you know, we can take home with us. Even if we are about to die tomorrow, we'll be thinking of those and going, you know, I had a wonderful time on this planet. Right. Um, And it's the same thing uh, through building a small nonprofit organization. I was able to work with some really talented people. So I I really believe in the bottom-up approach. And I think that there's so much potential. And it just feels so great to see that growth happen within the individual and within probably a group that is working on a a project like that. And just what I've been, I'm almost 40 years now, but I'm looking forward to the next 40, you know, completely transforming the face of the planet. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited about the future. A big thank you to our excellent speakers, Yusuf, Ashwin, and Tanashri for their contributions to this episode. I found it really interesting and thought-provoking, and I hope you have as well. Thank you as well to the World Bank for funding this deep dive series into South Asia. And if you are interested in reading more, we will be publishing two long reads on the issues that we've spoken about today. And you can find these at cascades.eu. That's cascades, C-A-S-C-A-D-E-S dot E-U. Do subscribe to the Climate Briefing to hear more from us. And wishing you all a lovely end to 2022 and a happy new year when it comes. Thanks. Goodbye.